So, uh, how is your judgment this morning? Doesn't sound too good if that was the response. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think of yourself as someone who typically exercises pretty good judgment? Are you someone who frequently feels judged by others? And have you noticed how dramatically the way we feel about judgment can change depending on whether we're the ones doing it or the ones receiving it? Or maybe even with all the baggage that we bring with us to it. We saw one form of judgment at work last week in the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector that Pastor John explored a bit with us, noticing how sometimes it is that those who are the most concerned about protecting the truth can be among the most harsh and judgmental of others, which is at least part of the reason why the whole idea of judgment can get so messy for us at times, spilling over not only into how we experience it in a general way, maybe what we might call judgment with a small j, but also into how we think about the judgment Judgment with a capital J. An idea, of course, which is just sort of part of our Adventist DNA. I mean, after all, what is it that the first of the three angels says in Revelation 14, 7? There you go. Fear God and give glory to him because, yeah, the hour of his judgment has come. The hour of his judgment has come has kind of an ominous ring to it, doesn't it? And so when you hear those words, or you hear that phrase, the hour of his judgment has come, what kind of a response does that stir in you? Sense of longing and hope and joy and relief, anticipation? Or are there other things that are not quite so warm and reassuring and comforting that it might stir? Something more like what we might feel if we were being summoned to the principal's office and we don't think it's because we're about to be given an award. After all, the angel's announcement does begin with the word fear, doesn't it? Fear. You know, and it's all of these feelings and ideas and images that we bring with us that help shape and frame the way we think about judgment that impact that in some pretty powerful ways. And that's true whether we spell it with a small j or a capital J. And it's also what contributes to much of the messiness that arises when we try to talk about it. And it is because for many of us, the images that come to mind when we think about judgment are things like performance reviews and levels of fitness for something or test scores or the question of whether or not we are worthy or qualify. And we didn't want to say anything, but the rumor is that you're not doing very well. And so as one might expect, judgment is often accompanied with a fair amount of anxiety. And as long as the dominant images that come to mind are telling us that judgment is all about us and how well we're doing and what's happening to us, and when all of that is laced more with anxiety than with grace, 
Not only can it leave us feeling quite insecure because of the awareness of our own faultiness, which all of us know about, but that same anxiety, when it becomes a driving force, can also make us rather judgmental and self-righteous and even harsh when we deal with each other. Because after all, it's all part of the way that I make myself feel secure to be sure that everyone agrees with me. And that's what happens when what binds people together as a community is more about our common anxiety than it is about an awareness of shared grace. And so while we long for judgment to be done well and perhaps even protest when we see unfairness and injustice in the world, at the same time, because in our most honest moments at least, we know that we are also pretty flawed, we also kind of fear it kind of a scary thing. So no wonder then, when we open our Bibles and begin to read there about judgment, we sometimes find ourselves wincing a bit as we read. All of which can make it really hard for us to hear just what the scriptures as a whole and what Jesus in particular is actually saying about it. So much so, in fact, that Jesus often used parables as a way to try to get around all of that stuff that otherwise gets in the way and makes it hard for us to hear what he's trying to say. As Pastor John has been reminding us the last couple weeks in his series on the parables, the purpose of the parables that Jesus told was not to go around reinforcing what people already thought but rather to find a way to slip in around the images and the ideas and the perceptions that had distorted the way they were looking at things. He did it with stories that would get them to think outside of the box so they could see what it was they were missing. And so this morning, as we continue in the series on the parables, we're going to take a look at one of those, one of those parables that Jesus told that actually has to do with the judgment. The judgment with a capital J. And hopefully as we do so this morning, we'll see how Jesus is trying to do that very same thing once again. Using a parable to try to get around the ways of thinking that his hearers were stuck in. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to that famous judgment parable. The parable that we know of is the sheep and the goats, which you'll find recorded in the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. If you have Bibles there, you're welcome to use those. Otherwise, I think we'll be getting the words up on the screen so you can follow along. But here's how the judgment story begins in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And so there it begins, the great judgment scene with a capital J. The entire world in this story is gathered before Jesus. No one is left out and a distinction that is of universal and ultimate significance is recognized. As the sheep are divided from the goats, the goats on his left, the sheep on his right. 
Now, the sheet and goat uh, imagery, of course, is one that would have been very familiar to the first hearers that Jesus was speaking to. It's maybe not quite as familiar to us. We don't do a lot with sheep and goats today, although I understand that uh, Junior Sabbath School recently had been talking about them. But most of us usually don't get a chance to do that very much. And while it may be technically true that sheep might have had a little bit of an edge on goats in those days in terms of their value, probably because they produced a lot of wool, and while it is true that in the pagan dream literature of that time, dreaming about sheep was associated with positive things and dreaming about goats was associated with trouble, which might be why it is when we're having trouble sleeping, we usually count sheep and not goats, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it may also be that maybe coming out of this story that goats have gotten kind of a bad rap. You see, the reason is, as it turns out, that shepherds actually separated sheep from goats was not really anything that ominous. It was not because they liked sheep better or because goats were inferior, but apparently because goats liked being inside at night in shelters, and sheeps really liked being out in the fresh air and in the open. And so the shepherd would bring the goats in and leave the sheep out in the area where they were because it was more comfortable for them. That's why they did that. So the parable here is not intending to slam goats. You know, it's kind of like, be nice to goat pay here. But the practice did provide a really nice illustration that the people at the time could immediately key into. They could visualize exactly what Jesus was talking about because they had seen how this happens. And Jesus could take that then and use it to make a much more important point. And so let's see where Jesus goes with it. Verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now, I think it's probably pretty say, safe to say that we can already tell that the more anxious among us have in their minds already been making their mental checklist so they can know that they're meeting the qualifications for the judgment. After all, that's what we do. Let's see, feeding the hungry, check, got that one. Stranger and invited you in. Well, maybe we better come back to that one. Needing clothes, ha, check. I'll give myself a meets and exceeds on that one. Right, lots of clothes. Have you ever found yourself getting caught in that kind of thinking when you read this story? But here's the thing. Here's the odd thing about this parable. Notice how it continues because it goes in a direction that you would not expect, especially if you're one of the first hearers. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, uh, Lord, <laughs> when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? This apparently was not a group that was doing real well with the checklists or keeping score. In fact, when it comes to that, this group of sheep sounds pretty clueless about all of it. 
Well, verse 40, the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Now, I just want you to take a moment to see if you can imagine what that must have sounded like to the people who first heard that. What would they have been thinking? Maybe something like, what? Are you serious, Jesus? This is the judgment we're talking about here. Judgment, you know, with a capital J. Not only do we have 10 commandments, we've got 500 additional laws that we've written down to make sure we get this right. We've been making our lists and checking them twice. And you're talking about taking someone to lunch? Really? This is not how we thought judgment is supposed to work. Unless, unless there is something that was getting missed here. And indeed, there was. And quite often, there still is. In fact, one of those things that too often gets missed, both here and elsewhere, is the context. And when we don't know what the context is, we often simply supply our own, which is what the basic problem with fundamentalism is. It doesn't take the context very seriously. But this parable, however, actually has one. And it is very, very helpful when we pay attention to what the context is. And so, what I'd like to invite you to do is take a couple of steps back so we can look at the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. And one of the things we discover when we do is that this is not the first time that Matthew records Jesus talking about judgment with a capital J. In fact, as Jesus was wrapping up one of his most famous sermons ever, the Sermon on the Mount, he gives a description of the final judgment with a capital J. It's the second to the last of his closing illustrations. You'll remember the closing illustration was about the wise and the foolish builders that built their house on the sand or rock. But as he's building up to that point, this is how he is tying the Sermon on the Mount together. Now, you also remember that all through the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus has been doing is unfolding for his hearers what life in the kingdom of God is supposed to look like, often in contrast to the way of what they had been accustomed to thinking it was all about. In fact, a frequent phrase all through the Sermon on the Mount is, you have heard it said, which would then be followed by, but I say to you. And each time he was not taking anything away from the law or what they had believed, but rather inviting them to take that to the next level, to think more deeply about things. He actually was raising the bar, not lowering it. But he was doing it in ways that did not simultaneously raise their anxiety and fear, but in ways where it was clear that it was flowing out of a deeper understanding of grace. He told them they would have to get beyond where the religious leaders had to become stuck if they were going to understand what the kingdom was really about, a kingdom that was not about keeping score or worrying about how well you were measuring up to the standard or worrying about how religious you looked but about a response in the heart to God's love and about genuinely investing your lives in the lives of others. 
He talked about the birds of the air. He talked about putting their trust in God's goodness and not their own resourcefulness. And all through the Sermon on the Mount, he helps them to see that they were living their lives out of the overflow of grace, that that was an expression of what God's will was for them. Living lives out of the overflow of grace was God's will for them. That's what the point was. And so as he begins to bring the Sermon on the Mount to a climax, notice how he describes the judgment scene here in Matthew 7. Verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And it is right here at this point that many completely misunderstand this passage because they looked it out of the context of the sermon that it's in. The will of God in the context of this sermon is living out of the overflow of grace, lives that are much freer and much richer than they ever could have been by sticking to what they had been used to, by trying to be good enough to make it, by living as if the checklist was what it was all about, concerned if they were earning enough points. It was a distorted picture of what radical obedience looked like. Well, he continues in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles in your name? And can you hear it in what they're saying? Doesn't that count for anything? What are they still relying upon? They're still focused on the checklist. They're still hoping to be good enough to get in. They're still hoping that someone will recognize all of their effort, all of which reflects a way of thinking in which the judgment is all about me. Look at what I did. Look at what I earned. Isn't there a spot for me because of all of that? But notice how Jesus tries to reframe their thinking. Listen to his response in verse 23. He says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. It's as if Jesus is saying, making a list and checking it twice religion was never what this was all about. You have mistaken something else for me. Now it's important when we look at this to notice in the context of the Sermon on the Mount where this happens, this is not Jesus jerking people around at the judgment time and saying, ha, you may have thought you were pretty good, but you're just not good enough. You thought you were coming in? Sorry, I don't even know who you are. And this is not Jesus saying, I am going to keep you anxious and worried all the way up to the very end because you can never know for sure if I will accept you when the time comes. He has just spent almost the entire sermon trying to tell people not to be anxious to trust in God's provision, to know that they had a place. If he was doing that, it would be to contradict everything he had just said. But what he is illustrating is that what matters as we come down to the end of everything, the real issue is not about us. It's not about how well we've performed. It's about whether or not we're living in response to him seeing him the way he really is in all of the ways that he had just described in the Sermon on the Mount. 
You see, the picture of judgment that Jesus puts out there is not one that's dominated by the checklists. It's not dominated by performance anxiety. But it has to know with what God is really like and what God has already done and then living in response to that. God's love for us. So then, when we look now at the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, in the context of the rest of the Gospel of Matthew and what Jesus has already said about the judgment, it brings what Jesus is trying to do in this parable into even sharper focus. And it frees us from the misconceptions. Jesus had just used a judgment story to help summarize and tie together what he was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. And now, Jesus uses the parable of the sheep and the goats, another judgment story, to summarize and bring together the way he was trying to answer a question the disciples had just brought to him, an anxious question about how they needed to get ready for the second coming. And it's in response to that question, which was also largely focused on what they needed to do, that Jesus gives them this parable and suggests a different way of framing the whole idea of the judgment and how we think about Jesus returning and what we do to get ready. In contrast to the image of a time when people will stand nervously before God wondering if they are good enough or if they'll make it or if they're gonna make the cut, Jesus offers a different picture. He offers a picture of a group of people for whom service had become so much a part of their life and who they were that loving like Jesus loved was just what they did. They didn't have scorecards in hand. In fact, it appears that they had lost track of them a long time ago. And because their walk with Jesus had stopped being focused on how many points they were racking up on their spiritual scorecards, they were now free to put that energy into something else. And according to the passage, they are genuinely surprised at just how significant that service turned out to be. It was beyond what they ever could have dreamed. Listen to verse 37 again. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And when you read these verses, I think it's worth noting that the idea that's being conveyed in the language here where it says, see you, when did we see you, when did we see you, is not just about seeing a person's need. It conveys the idea of actually seeing the person. Do you know what it's like when somebody doesn't just see the situation you're in, but they actually see you? Had that happen? when you actually see the person. That's what's being described here. People who see like that. And then the king replies, truly I tell you, whenever you did that for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. See, Jesus did not give them the picture of judgment that they had anticipated or even the one they'd been accustomed to. Rather, he suggested a new picture with an entirely different focus. A judgment where the focus is not on how well I score, but rather one that acknowledges that when we serve others, we are serving him. 
one that describes God's people as those who are learning to get over themselves and are showing their love of God by just loving other people. Loving God and loving people. I wonder if we've heard that somewhere before. And as the rest of the parable also illustrates, it is those who do not get this, who put their quest for what's in it for them, even if it's put in a very nice and neat and shiny religious package, ahead of what it means to genuinely care for other people. Those are the ones that ultimately miss out on what the kingdom is all about. Not just then, but now as well. And they too are described as pretty clueless because they don't understand that how we treat each other matters. It matters ultimately. It matters enough that it's the only thing that Jesus mentions when he tells the story. And so when this parable is read in context, a very clear picture of judgment with a capital J emerges. It's not a judgment of Jesus reinforcing our anxiety by giving us new things to worry about, more ways that we can't make it, wondering if we'll ever be good enough, but rather it's an invitation to a way of life where judgment anxiety is no longer an issue and where people are so involved in loving people well that they have stopped keeping score. They're not worried about that anymore. And instead, they take that energy and they put it into learning to love well. That is what the Apostle John is talking about when he writes in 1 John 4, beginning with verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Some translations say fear has to do with judgment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And we love because he first loved us. We love not in order to. We love because of. That's what it's like when it stops being all about us and we start living in response to what it means to be loved in amazing ways. Then the judgment becomes the time when we are likely to be surprised at just what a difference that actually made when we see the ripple effects of what it means to live that way. I recently, I think, caught a glimpse of what this kind of reframing our thinking looks like. In a blog post a little over a week ago, it was written by Liana Norheim. Many of you know her as Liana Amador. She's still a member of our church. She recently got married and uh, moved to Norway. She's been there a little bit over a year with her husband. And as she's been living there for the last, well, over a year, I'm not sure exactly how long there, she's been writing in her blog about what it's been like for her to adjust to a new culture and living in a new part of the world. And here's what she wrote just a few days ago. It's posted on uh, the 25th of February, and I have her permission to share this with you. But I just want to quote a little bit from her blog. I think it's safe to say, she writes, that being seen is a basic human need. We need to be acknowledged and known and accepted. Most often, we grow up with family and friends being those eyes, 
seeing us and reflecting back our image by how they interact with us. But set sail to a new world and leave behind that village that has raised you. And suddenly there you are, just you, alone. When you anticipate a smile, a nod, a look, anything that says, I see you, we're all human beings on this journey of life together, and instead meet averted eyes in silence, it begins to feel like you've actually become completely invisible. I admittedly found this to be a relief at first. I mean, no more fake American friendliness. But after a few months dragged into a year, I began to admit to myself that this was hard. Really, really hard. The thing is, I'm not the only one who feels this way. Even Norwegians moving back home after a long stint abroad or to a new town in Norway struggle with the isolation of what it feels like to be an outsider. This is Norway, after all, the land of the reserved, where strong value is placed on uniformity and modesty and sometimes keeping to yourself. It certainly felt grim for a very long time. But slowly and nearly imperceptibly, things began to change for me. I came upon the realization that I had come to Norway in the spirit of, here I am. It was an unconscious assumption that others would then extend their arms to me. But then my paradigm gradually began to shift to, there you are. And it wasn't about whether I felt seen anymore. It was about seeing others. It was about being self-forgetful and letting myself be overcome with curiosity and interest in other people. This new perspective changed things for me in profound ways. I can't say I've suddenly gotten a gaggle of Norwegian friends. They are still few, but good and kind people. But my personal challenge is to live in the spirit of there you are every single day. I dare myself to make eye contact, to say hello, to extend warmth and friendliness. It isn't always easy, Sometimes I feel a bit defeated, but it is absolutely worth it. Yeah. You know, Liana's experience, I think, reflects a glimpse of the life of the kingdom that Jesus invites us into, where, secure in knowing how loved we are by him, we can stop letting it be all about us. And out of the overflow of that love and grace, begin to really see the people around us and love them the way that we have been loved. So Jesus says, if you want to think about the judgment with a capital J, why not try thinking about it like that? And you know, interestingly enough, when we do, we don't find ourselves quite so tangled up in judgment with a small J either. Oh, and by the way, that first angel, you know the one that tells us about fearing God because the judgment is coming and who is so much a part of our Adventist DNA? Well, despite the mutations that have taken place in the DNA over the years, and there have been a few, when you read that message carefully and in context, there are a couple things you discover. One is that the message actually started in verse 6, not in verse 7, where we sometimes start the quotation. 
where we are told that this very same angel is the one that is carrying to every kindred tongue and people the message of the everlasting gospel, the good news about Jesus. That is the first angel's message. And second, that call to fear God, which is kind of a little part of that bigger message, it's not about standing in terror before someone who's going to find fault with you. It's about standing in awe of how amazing God is and what the gospel reveals about him. And maybe even in the course of that, what we can anticipate being surprised about as the judgment is coming. And so in the messages of those angels and in the parables that Jesus told, we are invited to share that very same good news everywhere in awe of how amazing God really is and perhaps even in anticipation of the surprises we're going to find out about when the judgment comes. Particularly, we'll be able to do that once we have discovered and internalized that it's really not all about us and that it really is about loving God and loving people, which frees us to love others in ways that we have not even imagined yet, ways that reflect how much we have been loved by him. And that is a standard far higher than you will find on any other checklist that you might try to create. Father in heaven, we are so grateful today that we can live in the assurance of knowing that we are part of your family, that in your house there is lots of room, and our hearts do not have to be anxious about that. But we pray that you continue to work in our lives, that we might live and reflect the life of the kingdom that you so much long to share with us and so much want to see being lived out in our midst. Thank you for your patience and your grace with us as we learn how to do that. We thank you this morning for your love in Jesus' name.